Welcome to the GateWorld Podcast. This is episode number 67 of the GateWorld Podcast. I'm Darren. And I'm David. And this is the show where two nerds talk about Stargate Universe. And today we're up to episode number 6. I guess episode 5 is our number 6. But it's Water, which aired last Friday on Sci-Fi Channel in the U.S. on Space in Canada. And just aired on Tuesday in the U.K. They just wrapped production last week. That's right. I think Thursday, I want to say. I wrote the news story, I should know. I think it was Thursday was the last official day of, of principal photography, but of course, post-production will continue for months and months to oh, come. Oh, yeah. There's some interesting stuff happening in Twitterville uh, that I did want to address. Joseph Malazzi's blog entry for, well, is it Saturday or Friday's blog entry? It was, I think it was the 31st, so it would have been Saturday. The 31st. So Halloween, October 31st, read it. It is a good read. I thought that Joe was really hitting the nail on the head. When the cast, especially the more inexperienced in the way of fandoms, like like Ugly Betty has a fandom and David Blues, obviously, you know, he's been at this for a while. Right. When they started hooking up on Twitter, I said to myself, oh boy, this is not going to end well for everybody. Well, David was Twittering and he had his own blog and, and had kind of been in this for a while and, and was really excited and having a great time and got a lot of other cast members to Twitter. So now Brian J. Smith and Ming-Na and recently Elise Levesque and a lot of the, the supporting players, Julia Benson and Patrick yeah. Gilmore and all these guys are on Twitter. There's like 10 or 12 of them now. More of the players than not. Right. As the season grew deeper, the the fans started taking issue with certain things, as is, of course, going to happen. And once again, we proved that uh, we can get really ugly. I mean, like calling Chloe a whore for crying out loud, one person did. That's the thing with the internet. There's no buffer. Any kind of fan who wants to have contact with you, they've got contact with you. Yeah. So they're going to post whatever they want. And folks like Brian J have said, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. He's walking away from Twitter. He's, he's left his account active. but He's decided to step away from Twitter, at least during the hiatus. He says that when they come back for season two, he might he might start it up again. It's not a, a final thing for him. But, you know, I also just read an interview with, with Michael Shanks where he says publicly a little bit that he's told us privately, which is that he's kind of stepping back from the online world as well. Oh, so he did mention that aloud. He did wow. in, a, in a public interview this last week online. He said, you know, I've got a daughter who is now at the age where she's surfing the web on her own and is, is exactly what he coming said across me. this kind of stuff. And, you know, people... People talk very poorly about not just the characters, but about the actors who play them, and uh, yeah. don't think before they say some of this stuff. And it's he's he he doesn't want to to uh, lend support to it. So it's unfortunate. Brian J and and Michael Shanks both seem to be uh, chased away a bit by the the. I think there's kind of a bad seed in in fandom at large. Well, I will speak to fandom, and then I will speak to the actors in some of our fandom, there is a failure of disassociation. These people are not their characters. And you can't criticize the actor for something that the character did. I mean, sure, discuss it with them, but but you have to include them on your side of the table because in many ways, they're a viewer as well. It wasn't their choice to do what a scripted character did in a scripted scene in a scripted show. That's the writer. Or a, a working actor taking a job. I've seen some nasty things said about about Michael, specifically just based on the fact that he took a job on SGU and, and did some guest spots on Universe, uh, coming from people who, 
who just hate universe and everything about it and think that it's the end of of Stargate. As if he's betraying the other two incarnations of Stargate. Working actor taking a job, something that he likes. It's absurd. And that's my problem with the internet, you know, we all of us from the most intellectual to the most nuthouse among us, you know, we all have access to the actors through things like Twitter. And that's why I don't tweet. I don't want to talk with people on that level on where, where anyone can communicate with me whatsoever. Now, I've spoken about the fans, and now I feel inclined to speak about the actors as well. And I watched Brian Jay do this, and I felt compelled to email him, but I didn't, you know, because it's his business, it's his world, you know, and, and who am I to, to do anything like that? You have to have a thick skin when you're dealing with fans. When a fan comes to you and says that they think that Robert Carlyle, a friend of yours, is ugly. How do you handle that? One response is to say, how can you say something like that? But I mean, as soon as you do that, you stuck your neck out there. Now you're up for people saying, well, you know what? He turned on me when he said this. I, I feel that you know my opinion, as absurd and ridiculous and terrible as it was a thing to say, an, an actor came in and retaliated against something that you said. And as soon as I read that, I was like, this is not going to end well. You cannot go online and have a thin skin if you're going to face the fans. And, and most of the actors will take the criticism of themselves and their parts pretty well in stride. But when you start talking about one of their friends, that's the Achilles heel with these guys because they care about each other so much and all the more power to them. There has been so much good fan interaction with Stargate actors. We've heard so many good stories and we've seen some of it firsthand where fans encounter you know, Amanda or Chris or Michael yeah. or, or Joe or, or Tori at a convention and, you know, give them a gift and get a hug. And it's just, mm -hmm. you know, some, some of these us fans, us fans are brought to tears by that mm -hmm. encounter um, because that person's character, the portrayal is so significant to them, has played such a, a part mm -hmm. in their lives. There's a bad side to it too. And the Stargate Universe cast has not been as insulated from it, I think. And a lot of it is because of Twitter, because they're they're out there. They are one click away from being able to be communicated with by anybody. But any of us. And you'll get 99 awesome comments from awesome people, and then one wisecrack from somebody who didn't think it through. Forums like ours, like GateWorld and, and, and like Twitter, are a blessing because they give anybody the opportunity to speak out and communicate with people around the world and have their opinions heard. And they are a thorn in the side because... When that opportunity is out there to say anything you want, people take it and they say anything they want and mm -hmm. don't think it through mm -hmm. with really unfortunate consequences. We can be a really beautiful fandom, but man, we can be an ugly one too. And it's up to the group as a whole to police that and say, you know what, that was not a good thing to say, rather than the actor coming in and saying that was not a good thing to say because then it paints the actor as a target. There has to be a respectable distance to protect them because this is a big show and it has a big fandom and you know the one percent of us who are online you know don't represent the 99 percent who are not online who watch the show religiously mm -hmm. that's another thing that we seem to forget is that we we think that we're the be-all end-all when in fact we are the slightest fraction of the audience the main discussion now our main discussion topic tonight is water episode six of stargate universe first season what did you think of Water? This was the first really standalone, single, one-part episode. It was well-acted, well-directed. The visual effects were fantastic. You can never flaw the visual effects in Stargate. Almost, almost never. 
that, that's really a given, and it's it's too bad that it's a given because those people go overlooked constantly because of that. I mean, the the, the scenic shots of that water planet are just fantastic. Once again, you know, we, we, we go through the Stargate to another planet. The, the, the substance that is surrounding the gate is not enough, so we have to go afar. Yeah, it kind of feels like Air Part 3 here. Just, just colder. It is the formula of Air Part 3, which could signal something very dangerous in terms of the mechanism of the stories for this first season. I hope that's not the case. You know, I hope that there's not a bunch of Air Part 3 in waters. You know, we, we have a problem. Destiny provides us the planet. We go through. We struggle to find our solution. We get back in the nick of time. We solve the problem. Mm-hmm. That will get old very fast. But in the meantime the growth of these characters was excellent in this show and it's a lasting growth thank god yeah some characters in particular i don't know about you but i felt by the end of this that this was kind of a an everett young episode in a lot of ways yeah. this was this was about uh, how's this guy going to react to the prospect of of maybe having to leave somebody behind and you know how's he going to react to guys like rush over the radio basically telling him he needs to do this so I thought it was a, a young episode, and I like that character, so I like this episode. The visuals are incredible. I think that this is one of the most beautiful episodes of Stargate, visually, that I've seen in a long time. The cinematography uh, was fantastic. Yeah, the, the alien uh, landscape and the alien sky really felt, felt alien. It felt like they learned a whole lot from what they did with Continuum. Uh, obviously, they had the advantage of shooting in the Antarctic, uh, for a lot of the external continuum stuff, but they also shot some of it on a frozen soundstage. All of Shanks' stuff. All of, all of Michael's stuff. The visuals are great. Um, I'm not sure which story to call the A story and which story to call the B story because there's a <laughs> whole lot going on on the ship, running around, chasing this alien life form, trying to figure out what it is and how do we get rid of it. Uh, it almost felt like that was more of the episode's minute count. When we had a shot of Eli and the dust devil came out of the ceiling and flew past him, I was watching with my friend Sean, and we just both went, Woo! It's back! Don't you recognize <laughs> that? And it drank the water in Air Part 3, and so that's what's happening with all the water. Ah, connect the dots. Oh, the picture is beautiful. The fact that they brought that clearly fascinating creature back and gave us more answers as to its motivations you know it is retaliatory if it interprets a, a threat to its existence it um you know it's definitely not enlightened in the way of where well this guy's shooting at me i'm just gonna get out of here no it turns around and fights yeah it reminded me of prodigy the little alien yes uh light balls bugs. whatever they were little bugs uh, these are smaller these are like grains of sand size but uh, it kind of reminded me of that and how those guys, mm-hmm. if, you, if you tick off one of those little light bugs, it can just shoot right through you and then they, they uh, swarm and kill the scientist. Mm-hmm. Here it is Marine Corporal Gorman. Yeah, our second confirmed death. The winner of this year's Stargate Universe Darwin Award, who pulled out his sidearm and shot bullets at the aggressive-looking sandstorm in the corridor. <laughs> it was pretty stupid. It was a pretty stupid thing to do. That guy got shredded. I mean, that attack sequence, that was... What was she talking about with his face? His, I mean, his face was not the only thing. I mean, he looked like he got shredded inside out all over. I, I would think so, yeah. I would think if he if he died as a result of those injuries, it, it just wasn't on his face. But, Death uh, by a yeah. thousand cuts. That was brutal. That was kind of gory. And the, yeah. the the attack sequence, I thought, was a bit uncomfortably long. And, and I think that's probably the way they intended it. 
So this Dust Devil life form is not necessarily all lovey-dovey like it was with Scott. It seemed to me in Airport 3 that it was a sentient being, a single entity, that mm-hmm. gave Scott what he needed. And here, these guys are, are on the ship, and they've, they're apparently a little microscopic-sized or, or larger than microscopic would be the size of a grain of sand. Uh, and they have a hive mentality, and they're more... They're more like animals. They're more responding uh, instinctually, drinking the water. And I mean, they're not helping us by drinking our water now. They're they're actively working against us. And then obviously, killing the guy is never a good thing. Well, that may not be their fault. I mean, think of, they've been trapped on the ship for three weeks. They may have this frightened elephant mentality now. They need to get off the ship, or at least I would want to get off the ship. But they do form a relationship, or a, at least give a nod to Tamara. Yeah, because she wasn't hostile. They seem to be continuing to build relationships, and they recognize Scott. They recognize Matt when they go through that Stargate. They immediately know who he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would have liked when it first encountered TJ and swarmed up and, and made a face in front mm-hmm. of her. I would have loved it if she had had some sort of hallucinatory experience where it showed her somebody from her past, like it did with Scott's priest. When they had it off screen, you could see her staring at it. It wasn't in view. I was wondering if uh, Colonel Young was going to materialize. But that didn't happen. So we have this life form floating around the ship, apparently drinking up all of our water. And the result is TJ orders a search of the ship. This brings up an interesting little issue that Franklin, one of the civilian scientists, makes a big deal over. The military is now actively searching people's quarters. Mm-hmm. This is kind of a rights issue. Do we have rights on the destiny? Or are we living under... under Martial uh, law. Martial law. Well, at this point, it really seems to be martial law to me. And they do find, in, in Spencer... Man, that that ass finally got what was coming to him with hoarding the food. Man, oh man. More quickly than I expected, he got outed. It does seem to be necessary. I mean, it's it's one thing when when we're the society that we are. There's there's greater infrastructure for justice, but when the situation changes like this, in certain situations, martial law is absolutely necessary. And Franklin does raise a very valid point. You know, more than than just Young and TJ and Greer, I think, know or are going to find out that Spencer stole all that stuff. So the question has got to arise, you know, from from somebody like Camille. We need some kind of a system. What do we do Mm -hmm. when people do this sort of thing? And Young Mm -hmm. just lets them off the hook. We need some sort of judicial system. I mean, it's part of, of settling in. And we all know and hope that these guys are going to be on board the ship for months and years. They're still at the point where they've only been on board the ship for a few days. They just recharge the batteries and are hoping eventually that Rush is going to come out of of uh, his lab and say, oh, okay, well, we figured out how to dial the Stargate back to Earth. Everybody get ready to go home. They're not settled in yet, and I want to reach that point, which I hope is coming in Season 1, where they're settling in more for long term and they can start to deal with some of these things. Yeah, how about that? The solar cells can only recharge at 40% of capacity now. Yeah, 40%. Because they're so old. Not enough to dial the Stargate. You know what the real trick would have been? Dial the Stargate while they were in the sun. But I digress. Uh, that's got to be an idea floating around, doesn't it? Just drain the ship as fast as you can so that she'll find another sun and do it again. <laughs> well, yeah, it seems logical. I mean, if there are 
controls around that if you can if you can circumvent the the lockout to be able to do that yeah. sort of thing while the while the ship is recharging seems to me that that maybe is hopefully going to come into play because they've basically showed us how the ship recharges itself and they have told us that it only recharges part way so we're going to need to do it again at some point so i'm thinking that the writers are laying the bits of information out the breadcrumbs so that they can use that again later so scott and young go looking for ice go ice mining this part of the story is really pretty simple they're trying to get this ice loose get it back scott falls into a crevasse gets stuck young can't get him out and has to face the possibility of leaving him behind pretty Mm -hmm. simple survival story but is it worth it? I mean, before they lost half of their water reserves, they had almost um, enough water to fill a pool. And now one ton of water per each sled trip, and they had two sled trips. And so, I mean, they, I didn't, even they, even get, they didn't even get two. They had, they had one and a half. Uh, it almost seems like it wasn't really worth it. I mean, I don't know the math. I mean, one ton of ice, how much water does that translate into? Yeah, they didn't seem to get all that much. It really, in the scheme of things, was not all that much. I mean, it's like, I love to use this analogy. My my father loves to collect aluminum cans. And so one time he borrowed a friend's truck to go take aluminum cans into Missouri to get $100 worth of money back from the aluminum cans. And when he was at a gas station, he hit one of the service pumps to cause $200 worth of damage for the $100 trip. The trip itself, with nearly the loss of life of Scott, the trip itself almost canceled out the effort of going to all the trouble. Yeah, and they're not doing another water episode that we know of, so you've got to figure that off-screen they're going to have to replenish their water. They're going to have to find a, a nice planet with a cool lake next to the Stargate and a gentle breeze. Because they can't all be this hard. Well, I don't know. Maybe We'll see. I don't know. That's. I mean, that's that's one of my questions. Why is there a Stargate on this planet? I was going to save that for quibbles, but I have other quibbles, so I'll do it now. This planet is... Okay, granted, the Stargate has been there for a long, long time, and maybe it wasn't in the middle of an ice age when it was planted. But the planet's capable of supporting life. They must be. That's yeah, what I mean, Rush said. It seems to be a, a basic criteria that the sh- the cedar ships would have is is put a stargate on a planet that we might actually want to go to someday. Or maybe it's just broader to include put a stargate on a planet that has a specific abundance of a supply that destiny might one day require. Yeah. So is this designated the water planet? I mean, yeah. it was not a good place to go to get water as a resource. Yeah. Should we talk about the uh, EVA suits in the Asgard? Yeah. Are we supposed to not notice that those are the uh, the evil Asgard EVA suits from? They are exactly ex- except for the helmet. They are the they helmet are is reuse of the same costume, and I think that it's very deliberate. I think we are supposed to notice. You think that that's deliberate? Yeah. Really? See, I don't. I think that this is just a matter of them. You think it's cost cutting? They they I don't view it as cost cutting. They use the suits twice, and they're dang good looking suits. So why not keep using them? Yeah, I think that it's deliberate, especially because it is so recent, and because, I mean, you and I thought when we were watching Atlanta Season 5, that bringing back the Asgard and making them bad guys in such an awesome way was a huge loss when the show got cancelled and they never came back. So I'm I'm hoping that they're seeding that little connection for fans as somehow... The Asgard have been to the ship? Somehow the Asgard have been to the Destiny. 
You know what? The Asgard are capable of traveling from galaxy to galaxy. We know that Destiny, when it left Milky Way, went through Pegasus. It deliberately went through Pegasus, yes. So, yeah, I'm thinking that the Dark Asgard have been there, and maybe they've... uh... I don't know, do you think the Asgard maybe even are still able to keep up with the ship? Maybe that was their shuttle that left in Air Part 3? Maybe in some of the in some of the unoccupied parts of the ship, maybe there is an ice cube tray of them in stasis. Why else would they leave their suits behind if they're not still there? Well, do you think that they are Asgard suits that they brought with them, or ancient suits that the Asgard found and pillaged? I'm too tired. <laughs> I think it's the latter. I think that they're ancient suits, and the Asgard found the destiny at some point. Ah, uh, and took some. And took them, and modified oh, them to their own use. That would be very clever. The thing with Scott, you know, Young tries to pull him out. Um, it's too dangerous to use the gun. He made that scene painful with, with Young's injury. Holy cow. That was hard to watch when he was pulling on Scott trying to get him out. Yeah, he really sold that. It's too too dangerous to send the gun down, too dangerous to try and use the torch, apparently. I'm not sure why. Just be careful with it. And the tremors on the planet. Yeah, I have a problem with this. Uh, from a storytelling point of view, it's the it's the last quake that finally frees Scott. So there mm-hmm. are two things going on here. Once again, uh, as as has been talked about recently with Light, our heroes are not doing anything, really. There's no clever rescue plan. It's just uh, we get an earthquake and Scott is conveniently freed. And so we can make it. Mm. That's a very valid criticism. Yeah, just like the destiny knows our needs and goes and brings us to where we need to go, uh, goes and and recharges itself in the sun, and there's nothing we can do to to stop it. There's nothing that we can do to to help it along. We're just along for the ride. Again, here with the earthquake setting Scott free, it feels like our characters are not really doing anything to save the day they're just getting lucky aren't you tired of having the characters save the day all the time (laughs) i'm tired of having the characters save the day all the time and mckay being able to figure out in five minutes the way that twenty thousand year old technology works these Uh, guys feel much more like astronauts to me yeah yeah the realism is definitely there and I like it. I'm just... This is episode six. That was one one criticism that I have of, of the way that, that uh, the climax was handled. The other was the fact that it seems like there's a missed opportunity with Colonel Young's character. Just before that earthquake, he looks at the hole. He sees there's there's basically no way he can get Scott out. He's being told to leave him behind. He looks over at the ice sled. I have all this ice. I've got to get back to my people so they can continue living. And then he looks back at the hole and what am I going to do... He's about to make the decision. Yeah, the episode has been leading up to he doesn't want to leave them behind. I mean, this is a major theme in Stargate SG-1 especially. We do not leave our people behind. Uh, Rush is sort of giving the, the anti-SG-1 voice there. Uh, he's extremely pragmatic. Leave them behind. It's in the best interest of all of us. Young is about to make that decision at the climax of the episode. The earthquake lets him out of it. So it felt like that was a missed opportunity for Young's character that we'd like. Uh, I compare the dilemma to to Sam and Jack in Solitudes, all the way back in season one of SG-1. Mm-hmm. Jack was injured and dying. There's nothing she can do, and, and he was ordering her to leave. And eventually, she had no other choice and packed up and left. I would have been really interested to see if Young would have left or would have stayed. 
we didn't get to see that. I wonder if that's deliberate. If we don't, we don't, we deliberately don't get a look into his character in in regards to that because we may not have as much respect for him after discovering that. Yeah. Rush really demeans Eli in this episode. Quit acting like a child. You know, you're, yeah, you're a does. baby, you're an infant. You know, this is. Uh, and and Eli is the one that you know the the young idealistic. Well, you're a big Eli fan, so how'd that make you feel? It's expected that he would want everyone to be transparent with each other because he he hasn't been through the rigors of of life like like some of these other guys have, and there is definitely a, a need to not tell someone everything in order for them to get the job done, not to cloud their judgment. I agree with with Rush that there was nothing that Young could have done had he come back to the ship. You know, he he needs to continue working on his situation. TJ has got yeah. the problem in hand. Yeah, I think Rush is right in this case. Eli is talking. Everyone is lying, and 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 Rush says, "Well, that's what grownups do sometimes." And once again, demeaning again. That's what we grownups do sometimes. And, mm-hmm. and if there is anyone who has acted more childlike, it would be Rush. Oh yeah, he, in in darkness, he threw a full blown temper tantrum. So they get back, and all is well. You know, we get rid of a threat. We go back into FTL to go on to another great adventure. Not a bad show. We had air and darkness and light and water, and we're now sort of getting to the end of this initial stretch of elemental titles of episodes where basic survival is what's at issue. We need to breathe, we need to drink, we need to eat. Fortunately, there's no episode called Food where they go deer hunting. Because I knew that this stretch of episodes was coming up, and this episode was about that next basic survival problem. I'm willing to forgive it a little bit um, to that extent, but yeah, it feels like the show is off to a slow start in that respect. There's not a lot of adventure going on, and it's a it's a good counterbalance I think to where Stargate was at, but I've said it last few weeks, I'll say it again. I, I need something to, more to happen. I need an adventure, and this was, I mean, at least they got off the ship and, and went to a cool planet. Uh, and got into trouble. So I think it's a step forward for sure. They did some cool stuff in this episode, but still, I'm waiting to be wowed. I was not wowed by water. I I was really looking forward to the visuals. The visuals really paid off. Um, they were they were outstanding in this one. But um, basic survival is getting old. The jeopardy that the characters are facing is really really broad. Um, mm-hmm. Light last week, I think, was was one of the best episodes of the season so far because the jeopardy that the characters were facing flying into the sun to their deaths was really immediate. Sort of, mm-hmm. we're running low on water is not as immediate a problem. I really feel like the crew needs to start acting. They need to, to start going out there and doing things other than just reacting to the low supply of the week. I was a little disappointed that... Scott turned off his walkie. I really did not expect him to do that. I was a little disappointed in the character for doing yeah, that. Yeah, he had his radio on when he was doing James. And then James, of course, is the one to find them, of course. I liked the nod between the two women. James doesn't look at her as a... doesn't look at Chloe as like a pariah and vice versa. Yeah, then Vanessa comes back when, when Matt is in trouble and basically tells Chloe what's going on, which seemed like a mm-hmm. really stand-up thing for the, the jilted ex-lover to do. Yeah. So yeah, I'm kind of wondering uh, as far as as uh, anybody listening to the podcast is interested in the relationship aspect of the show. I'm wondering if James thinks that Chloe is just sort of Scott's flavor of the month, the next one that he's moved on to, 
or if she recognizes that you know their thing was just physical and now Scott has found somebody that he really cares for. That's a really good point. Boy, I think Chloe needs something to do, frankly. She does need something to do. I was expecting by now for her to find her niche. Yeah, that's it exactly. She needs her niche. I mean, Cass became a medic. Chloe needs a niche. And if they are making it a story point that she doesn't really have anything to contribute, then that's one thing. But I don't think that point has really been made all that much so far. It was a little bit in in darkness, I guess. But yeah, she needs something to do. And again, that's part of the settling in. That's part of the... We've got to recognize that we're not going home the day after tomorrow. And there are certainly going to be things for all of them to do. I mean, you know, when we get to the end of that first season, that crew is going to be manning all of those gun turrets on the outside of that ship and firing those things, you know. So maybe Chloe will be really good with with one of those turrets. (laughs) (laughs) It's time for Quibbles. How long do you think it's going to be before... Rush runs out of blank pieces of paper in that little notepad of his. He's had that notepad since Icarus Base. He's always flipping through it, you know, making little making little notations. Sooner or later, he's going to run out of pages. Yeah. He's going to have another meltdown. He's going to go through paper withdrawal. Well, they did bring paper through, so... Yeah, you just never know what was in those storage containers that they evacuated with. You can pull out all sorts of things that will serve the story. Maybe the ancient containers have reams of paper with the corners cut off. One quibble I have is... The fact that these little alien life forms, tiny, tiny life forms, for being native to a desert planet, they sure are thirsty little buggers. I would think that life forms, I mean, obviously there was some water on that planet, whatever it was that, that bubbled up and woke up Scott. Yeah, I would think that as, as animals, not necessarily a sentient cloud being, but as, as tiny little animals interested in self-preservation, that they would biologically not be attuned to be able to consume that much water, let alone want to. Perhaps it is the medium in which they reproduce. I mean, the planet used to have water. Maybe they haven't reproduced in in a very, very long time. That could be. They take the opportunity to go to the ship and make more of themselves. This, again, has to do with, like, the design, the nature of the Destiny. Destiny seems to be able to do a lot of things for itself. If you're sending the ship out into the universe, chances are it's going to be pummeled by an asteroid or two now and again. Why wouldn't you design the ship to repair itself? It seems to me like if you're going to send a ship out into the universe where anything is out there, where it can encounter hostile aliens, whatever, you would design it so that it could be self-repairing. Give it some sort of a mechanism with which it could repair itself. I mean, it's obviously capable of collecting raw materials. It doesn't make sense that by the time the ancients get out there, you know, it's damaged. And you have a work list of stuff to do to repair the ship. Why didn't you build the ship in such a way to take care of itself at the start? Well, it has shields, which I'm sure has protected it from from asteroid and other little collisions. Plenty. I don't know. It has all sorts of holes in on it. Those shields didn't work at some point. And it looks like it's... I mean, there's there's speculation based on the condition of the ship that it may have come under attack. Especially once we saw the shuttle detach at the end of Air Part 3, we know that there are other species out there who are technologically capable of keeping up with the Destiny and aware of it. So it may have have, uh, been through some scrapes in its day. But, yeah, that's a good point. You can only continue to say, well, the ship is really, really old. So maybe it did have those systems and they don't work anymore. That's certainly possible, yeah. We know that there are sections of the ship that we have not been able to access. And, you know, as I'm sure, I am sure, or I hope, you know, in some future season, you know, they will build more sets and show us more of the ship. 
Yeah, now that's interesting. We only occupy a small portion of the destiny, and as we learned this week, for example, we don't have access to any open airlocks in the, yeah. the habitable parts of the ship so far. So we're basically, think about a giant ship like the Enterprise, we're basically living in crew quarters and 10 forward and yep. in the Stargate. We have no access to engineering, we have no access to the bridge. It's just a matter of time before they gain access to those systems. Those systems do exist. They have to. And obviously there was a way for the ancients to, to gain access to the core systems once they got there. This one has been driving me nuts for weeks. You have a Stargate on a desert planet. You have a Stargate on an ice planet with significant tremors. There is no way after millions and millions of years, or however long, that those Stargates are going to stay unburied. It's not possible. There has got to be some kind of a mechanism on which the gate is saddled to continually unbury it as sand builds up over the top of it. Something comes up and scoops the sand away like the little automated kitty boxes. It's got to be on top of some kind of a mechanism. So if the Stargate falls into the ice like the Stargate fell into the ocean in Torment of Tantalus, that it can claw its way out of whatever predicament it's in and resettle the gate on dry ground so that people can come and use that planet. Uh, otherwise, these Stargates would not be accessible. There has to be something that's, that's keeping them unburied for millions of years. I don't know about that. I would be more inclined to think that there were a lot more Stargates that were seeded when we get to a galaxy and only have three gates within range, uh, I'd be more inclined to think that there were more gates out there, and a lot of them have become buried and unusable. But yeah, that's definitely one to keep watching for. I mean, it's a really easy problem to solve. Design a Stargate with the technology to keep itself available, because you're, you know that you're going to be using it a long period of time after it has been placed there. You would design it in such a way so that... Uh, 90% of our gates are now unaccessible. Oh, well, we, we, we'll use this 10%, you know. It was yeah. the luck of the draw. We knew that this would happen. No, you would design it with something so that it could keep itself available. Yeah. So that technology wouldn't go, go to waste. Yeah, we definitely need to learn more about the cedar ships that put the Stargates there and what their modus operandi was. What mm-hmm. were their qualifications for selecting a planet, for selecting a location for the gate? Well, what's the mission of the destiny? Is it is it exploratory? Were the ancients just going to look around on these uninhabited planets and then move on to the next one for the, the rest of time? Or was there a greater purpose? Yeah, what's the greater purpose of the destiny mission? One might interpret the ancients as great conquerors. I mean, go out into the universe. Plant flags. Yeah, see the nature of yourself, your DNA. You know, it was one of the questions that I asked Rob Cooper, and he conveniently dodged, uh, was uh, did these cedars only plant stargates, or did they also plant DNA? And he wouldn't answer that, which nice. I, do not, I do not blame him for not answering. I think that that's definitely something that uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't answer it if someone asked me that, and I was creating this show. Yeah, but maybe there's something to that. Maybe there's something to that, or maybe they want to keep that open. Also, what are the odds? Do you, it, it certainly seems to me that at some point we're going to encounter one of those other ships. I would sure hope so. Yeah. I don't know how much this one is a quibble. It's definitely worth discussing. How much weight can those Kinos support? Because if you didn't notice point. it on your TV, this, the little invention that Eli came up with making the sled, he basically looks like he took a table and popped a couple dozen Kinos underneath it. Yeah, and the levitate. about 25 Kinos. Uh, and it, it said it could support a ton or two of weight. 
Yeah, I mean, he said more than you can carry back yourselves, obviously. So it's it took a, a whole lot of ice. And mm-hmm. obviously it held Scott, who weighs l- much, much less than a whole lot of ice. The Kinos levitate, and we don't really know by what power. I don't think no. we've seen much in the way of anti-gravity technology in the Stargate universe. I mean, I'm thinking of things like in Orpheus, the, the anti-grav platform was used to construct a ship over the surface of a planet. Shades of Grey, they had some kind of a gyroscopic action device, which uh, Tobias was trying to explain to O'Neill, and you know, so that technology does exist. So the Kinos can fly, but they don't have little jets on the bottom that keep them afloat, so yeah. I don't know, I'm kind of wondering what the, the maximum weight limit for one of those guys is. That opens up some other story possibilities, you know, can you... Can you grab uh, onto your Kino and... Can and... you grab onto one and fly over a, a chasm? Yeah, you know, exactly. You know. Eli has this this awesome little line about, you know, the sled was basically the latest in my attempts to fly. That is an interesting notion. Can you grab onto one and, and, and get over some kind of a, a physical barrier? That would be fun to watch. Especially if it was Eli. Yeah. <laughs> Dangling. <laughs> well, that's our conversation on water. And if you want to see full coverage of this week's episode, head over to GateWorld.net. We've got photos. We've got over 1,100 HD screen captures from the episode. We've also got a review and a transcript, and you can discuss it over in the water section of GateWorld Forum. Listener mail. The peeps are calling into the hotline, and let's hear what you guys have to say. Hey, this is Draco Astris speaking from Iowa on the ongoing Destiny Age debate. First, I want to point out that Stargate has several points in the past attempted to sort of adjust the facts about the universe, such as the time it takes to go through a wormhole, or the way a Zat gun works, or the nature and origin of the Wraith, etc. So they're not outside of doing that kind of thing, which really, I haven't seen any sci-fi, almost, that is outside that. But anyway, so obviously the debate stems from the fact that Rush says the ship is hundreds of thousands of years old, when we know that Atlantis was several million years old, you know, even just when it took off from Earth which would seem to be a big inconsistency. So the question is, why do they do it? I would like to point out something else. Obviously, there's a lot of Christian themes going on in this show, which in the past, they've kind of tried to scoot around Christian themes entirely, with the primary exception of the episode Demons. But now in SGU, we've got prayer going on when they all think they're going to die, and then in the desert planet where he starts having these flashbacks and mirages with very heavy Christian themes going on. In fact, at the end of that episode, my mom went so far as to say that maybe there wasn't really an alien there, and it really was God telling him where the water was and helping him out and all that. In the Old Testament, I believe sometimes God is represented as a talking whirlwind in the desert. I think the wording of hundreds of thousands of years instead of millions or several million might be an attempt to get more initial approval from that audience in the premiere of the show. It's in the first episode that he says this. Being a Christian man myself, I have no problem with that whatsoever. I mean, they, I mean, I believe that the Earth is millions of years old, and I'm a Christian. But, yeah, I, I, I don't see that that's necessary. It's an interesting thought. I love the fact that people keep coming up with these really interesting theories to explain this apparent inconsistency with the age of the destiny. But, uh, yeah, I'm also an old Earth Christian, 
I guess I can kind of say this because I've talked with Brad Wright about Christian themes in Stargate a little bit, and also with Rob a little bit. I talked yeah. with Rob in, in uh, my Arc of Truth interview, and I had like 15 or 20 minutes of discussion about religion and Stargate and the Ori, and uh, didn't include that part in the interview that we published because I was going to save it and do a special feature, and I lost it in a hard drive crash, and I'm such an idiot. It's happened to all of us. Yeah, I also remember uh, uh, chatting briefly with Brad after our visit one time uh, and just telling that I was I was in seminary or going to seminary. And uh, he thought that it was really interesting that I was tuning into all these religious themes in SG-1, you know, the, the ghouls and the false gods and, and all of that stuff. You know, having had those conversations and knowing those guys a little bit, I would venture to say that... that it's it's fantastic, I think, that they're including these Christian themes overtly and, and putting things in there like, you know, in light, uh, a group of people who believe they're about to die are having a, a prayer session, basically. I love that that's in there and that they're doing some of that stuff overtly, but yeah, I don't, I don't see them as uh, deliberately trying to cater to Christian fans in this mm-hmm. way. Hi, this is Teresa from the forum. How come they've never found the keynote on Atlantis? And I'm thinking if the Destiny predates Atlantis, wouldn't they have found them on Atlantis? My name's Dave, and I'm calling from Syracuse, Utah. I really enjoy listening to you guys at work. Uh, I have just a couple of things I thought I'd bring up. I was just wondering, they seem to have such a lack of expertise on the Destiny. Uh, Why don't they just bring Rodney McKay or Samantha Carter or somebody over to the Destiny with the communication stones to fix things or help around uh, getting things up and running. Uh, The second thing, uh, a few episodes ago you guys were talking about ratings and how Stargate Universe has had somewhat low ratings uh, compared to Atlantis and SG-1, especially the premieres. One thing I had noticed, um, I like to DVR everything and watch it later, but I thought I'd hop on online and just uh, take a look and see what was going on with the torrents, because I know a lot of people like to download these episodes. And uh, what a lot of people may not realize is that these downloaded episodes do not count towards the ratings, uh, and in my opinion, is a bad thing. I looked online and noticed that there were about 101,000 people at the time. This was 9.51 a.m. Mountain Time on Saturday morning. 101,000 people downloading the episode, and that's 101,000 people who would not be applied towards the ratings. Uh, just an observation, maybe even something to tell the listeners, uh, if anything, watch them, don't torrent them, so that we can get some ratings and possibly uh, you know, extend this series as long as possible. Hi, Darren and David. Depleted ZPM from California here. I have a quibble about Destiny's apparent lack of self-defensive measures against potentially hostile beings on board. Can the ship tell the difference between friendlies, hostiles, and parasites? At the end of Air Part 3, there was the bug vehicle that detached from Destiny. In water, there are the dust devil aliens absorbing the water reserves. It seems that Destiny and her survey ships could have inadvertently ceded advanced dangerous technologies to other races along the journey. It would follow the pattern of the ancients causing many of their own worst problems. On the other hand, so far the Earth team seems to be not so much crew as squatters on Destiny. They don't have control of the ship, though Destiny tolerates them and works with them in cases when it suits the ship's agenda. Now ask, what if the Wraith were able to dial up the Destiny and send some of their people through? 
it's plausible, since Todd stole much of the Atlantis database and had some ZPMs hidden up his sleeves. How much would the ship cooperate with the Ray? Destiny should have protocols for dealing with unwanted intruders, but we haven't seen evidence of it. How come she hasn't been picked off by some alien race and stripped for her technology? This is a really interesting question. Thanks for this depleted ZPM. I think that Destiny doesn't necessarily have that sort of a conscious mind. At least I don't get the impression that it does. It seems like it would quote-unquote cooperate with pretty much anybody who's there. This is very ancient Atlantean technology. I mean, it is before Atlantis. The producers have said as much. So the ATA gene, you know, those sophisticated bells and whistles designed to keep Wraith out. Yeah, ATA was a security system, wasn't it? Yes. And the fact that apparently other life forms have been to Destiny before, presumably yeah. have been inside, would lead me to believe that there's not a whole lot in the way of automated internal security. Who knows how many supplies the ship had when they first set out that are gone. If aliens have been inside the ship when they open those crates and, oh, look, at there's food, there's... there's there's all these things that we can use, that the ancient crates, and nah, nah, there, they would have been There pillaged. probably won't be much of value in there, and it'd be interesting if they opened those crates and basically figured out that they had been rifled through. Hey guys, it's Matt from Peoria, Illinois. I would complain a little that about one thing about Universe is that they've seemed to get lucky, you know, so far, you know, about the ship flying into the sun on its own, and Scott seemed to get lucky finding the lime in the desert. They got lucky in water. That last tremor shook uh, Scott loose. Young was able to pull him up. It's all right, but I'd like to see some ingenuity from the crew. This is a very valid argument, you know, and we discussed yeah. this a little bit earlier. The, the team needs to, to be... Ingenious would, I guess, be the... And Eli does this in this episode with the Kino sled. That was cool. Yeah, that was one of my favorite little moments because it was, again, the, the team is, is really passive. The characters are really passive so far in the story. And that was the cool little thing that Eli came up with. Yeah, I've got to agree with Matt. The team has, has been getting lucky so far. They've been fortunate, and then they also have this ship that knows what their needs are. I'm right with you. I'd like to see the crew actually start to, to be clever and have to be clever. You'd think that they would be dead by now. Well, maybe the first time they went through and Rush went back in time and, and met the Ancients and the Ancients provided him with everything he needed and we're just waiting to find that uh, Rush on ice who is millions of years old. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hi, guys. This is Thomas from Ontario. I was rewatching Air Part 3 and I just had to call attention to the, to the part where Dr. Rush is uh, explaining Ascension to Eli. I just noticed the music. It was the same... Uh, ancient Ascension theme that Joel Goldsmith used um, in SG-1 and Atlantis whenever they brought up the topic of Ascension. So I thought that was a great tip of the hat from both the earlier series. Yeah, uh, this is William Kong from Baltimore, Maryland. This week's episode was a bit faster than the other ones. I like the way that things are degrading slowly on the destiny. We have like a bit of justice in this week's episode, like, Baldy got caught, which is great. I love that. Johansson doesn't trust Greer, which is surprising. After they were friends with Scott, I mean, it was awkward. Chloe is on to Rush again. I think that was funny and predictable, you know. Uh, ever since uh, the first two episodes, I knew that Chloe wasn't really off Rush's back. 
and Young are getting closer at the point that Scott is getting a, a little bit too familiar with Young, but they were in a in a life threatening situation, you know, maybe the formalities you know, were forgotten at this moment. And the CGI was beautiful. Hey guys, what's up? My name is Scott. I'm calling from New Jersey. I've been a long, long time Stargate fan. Probably going back maybe 10 years. Ever since I got into it, I'm still hardcore into it. And I love your podcast. I listen to it every week. And a lot of times when you guys are talking about old episodes, it makes me go back and rewatch some of them. And I just really enjoy them. And I'm really enjoying that Stargate universe. I like the way the storylines are and like how it's, you know, not action, action packed, but it'll probably pick up. But it's still good, though. Stargate, Stargate, you know, it's all good. But, yeah, I just wanted to say I really, really like what you guys are doing, and I hope you guys keep doing it. I look forward to your podcast every week and your interviews. Oh, I love them. They get me through the hard work day, you know? Thanks, everybody, for your voicemail this week. Lots of interesting things to talk about. Keep it coming for next week. We're going to be talking about Earth. This week's episode is on Friday night on Sci-Fi and Space. So this week's listener question, call in. Tell us what you think of this week's episode. So then what's next? So November the 11th, we have Earth coming up front and center after that. November the 18th is our discussion for the episode Time. And November 25th, we will be discussing life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Or something like it. Good movie. This will be interesting. Earth and life. I'm having trouble separating in my head based on what little info we know about those stories so far. But time, I'm really looking forward to time. Time sounds interesting. Time has a cool sci-fi premise that we just know a little bit about. If you want the the little spoilers that we know, you can go look it up in the episode guide on Gateworld. But it has a cool sci-fi premise, and that's what I'm looking for from this show. It's, it's doing great character development so far. It's, it's uh, getting an A-plus in character development, but I'd like to see a cool little sci-fi story. So thanks for tuning in. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, you mean them. You're talking to them. You're not tuning in. You probably will, though. I'm tuning out. If you want to give us feedback, please give us a jingle on the GateWorld podcast hotline. That number is 616-712-1647. You can call anytime, day or night. It does not ring anywhere or wake anyone up. Uh, leave us a voicemail there, or you can email us a brief audio recording to webmaster at gateworld.net. And you can also visit us on the podcast feedback thread over at GateWorld Forum and see what everybody's talking about. Good times? Good times. Great oldies. All right. I think we've made that joke before. Oh, there you go. It's only 67 episodes. You can't make the same joke twice yet. Ah, okay. I was getting ready to make him bark. Okay, fine. Speak. Good boy. Good boy.